I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Maurice O'Keefe and welcome to part one in a three-part podcast on Bishop Eamon Casey's own story. He was a man who was energetic and colourful. He had a deep passion for social justice. It's in you. It's in, it, it, you, it, it's part of you. You, you, you. you don't have to look and say, am I able to do this? I'm able. You just do it, I mean. He became well known while working on the Irish immigrant chaplaincy scheme in Britain from 1957 until 1969. I began to make contacts you know, with different people in, in, in England and would get them to come up and see us before they went and we would try to help them to where to go, how to get a job. And at the end of that year, he was appointed Bishop of Kerry. It was in the few weeks I was in Dublin with my, with my, my father that was living at the time that he was called to the park. Mm-hmm. And it was then I was taught that I was made Bishop of Kerry. And became the first chairman of Trocra, an Irish Catholic development aid agency, in 73. If there's going to be an organisation in Ireland, it must be Irish. And that's what gave me the idea of setting up In 1976, he was appointed Bishop of Galway, and while he was there, he organised the visit of Pope John Paul II to Ireland. These three men were standing at the door, all dressed in black, with long black coats coats on them. But he was clouded in controversy. He was hounded by the media after it was revealed that he had an affair with an American woman, Annie Murphy. And then I wanted to get out before the media descended upon me. And in 1992, he resigned from being bishop and left Ireland to take up his priestly duties in Ecuador. It was a monastery of men, uh, the bulk of them priests, a number of brothers as well, and they were silent. They didn't speak. And can you imagine me right down in, in in, in the middle of them? He was later assigned to Sussex, and in 2006, he retired to Shanoglisha in County Galway. And that's where I met Dr. Eamon Casey and recorded his life story. Dr. Eamon, it's lovely to meet you and to see you again thank in you. such in such good form. Thank and God. Thank God. You're feeling well. Yes, thanks be to God. You're happy here in, in, in this parish? Settling in. Good. Can I start by asking you, you were born in Kerry. Where? Fireys, a little village called Fireys. My father was a creamery manager there. And in fact, we lived over the creamery. There were nine, I can still remember, young as I was, 19 cement steps, and there were eight of us born in, in, in Fireys. How we all survived without falling down those steps, I don't know. But that's where I was born in Fireys. Your father was a creamery manager. That's right. And 
he decided to move to Adair, didn't he, at, at, at some stage? Well, it was the same as any profession that you're in, you know. Mm. Remember, he was a Limerick man. He was, uh, all his brothers were farmers in Limerick, as was, his, as was his own father. And obviously, when Black Abbey came up, which was a big creamery because it, it had two branches, Belly Brown and Black Abbey, and Black Abbey was the main one, Belly Brown and Patrick's Well. And as he worked through it over his years, was the main support, the, the main butter supplier of the whole city of, Limer- of Limerick City. So obviously he moved to a, 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 more, a more prestigious job and a bigger job. So the greater part of your young life was, was spent in a day? Oh, in a day, that's right, that's right, that's right. And I'll always remember... Um, Lord and Raven, as you know, Adair was owned by Lord and Raven. It was burned down, you see, just at the turn of the century, and it was rebuilt by Lord and Raven. And I don't know if you know Adair or not, but if you're coming out from Limerick and you're driving into Adair, the first thing you'll see is the village hall. Mm-hmm. And then out, out in a V from the village hall, in exactly the same architecture, are two lovely rows of cottages built in. It's a beautiful village. It really is one of the loveliest. And... Uh, was all owned. Now, how my father bought the plot, we had, I couldn't tell you, but how he did. And we built our own house, and I remember, well, it's only years later, my mother told me this. You see, at that time, although we had bought the, the, the plot, you had to submit the your house to Lord and Raven, and they turned down the first, which was made by an architect, they turned it down, and it was my mother designed our house. And what she did was, it was in a, a rectangle, she put the whole of the front of the house at the sitting room. Because I remember now, there were eight of us already there and two more were born, so there were ten of us in all. But she put the whole of the front of the house in the sitting room, and then folding doors, which was unusual at that stage, into the dining room, so that two thirds of the house could be in one room at any one time. And we had many, many, many a great part of that, and no drink, I can tell you <laughs> that, in those years. But that's right. The, the village must have been quite... Oh, it was. Oh, it was a lovely, lovely, mm. homely village. And uh, what was lovely about it was we were all we all went to the brothers, or to the nuns, if you know what I mean. There were no divi- divisions in the village at all. We all knew each other. We were all pals. And we were very lucky, you see, that we had the Christian brothers, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- without them, oh, I mean, we, we could never have had the education that we had. In fact, seven of us were the first to do the intermediate. My brother and I were two of them. Although Michael was a year and a half older than me, uh, this was the first time we ever had did the internet there, and they took us out of sixth class or seventh class. We had seventh class that time as well. He was in seventh in January, and we did the intermediate the following June, twelve months. My goodness! And I'd say we barely passed it, but, <laughs> but we passed it anyway. And I always remember, obviously, the brothers were were delighted, you see, and came in to tell my father that we'd passed children. I mean, we were all playing Holland in the backyard, and it meant nothing to us. <laughs> the fact that we'd passed the inter didn't make, made, no, made, made no big deal. Mm. And after that, then we were to go to Black Rock, because my father had two cousins, priests there, and uh, just about a month before I was due to go to Black Rock, the local curate, Father Junkelhan, whom we all loved, my mother had been ill for many, many years, and he was very kind to her, um, came up and said to my father, I booked Damon into St. Punchins. My father came out to the backyard. We were playing Holland in the backyard, and said, uh, "Father Galan has booked you to St. Munchens. Surely, Father Galan asked me to try to climb that wall. I tried to climb, but we all had a great regard and affection for him. And he said, "I will," and that's why I went to St. Munchens. My and then my brother John, who wasn't ready for going away at all, God rest him now. He was he was as wild as a March hare, and he wouldn't be expected to be going away to college for another two years. 
suddenly because we booked two places in Glycroft, you see, I got a court in them because we had two cousins there as priests as well. He had to go away. And, and always resented it. <laughs> <laughs> Never passed an exam in his life and ended up owning his own hotel. <laughs> but you fell into the, the priesthood. At what stage of your life did you decide that you wanted to enter Minute College? Well, that would have been... Well, first of all, you see, when Father Colhane asked me, um, we were all on to boys, of course, uh, asked me to go, as I t- t- told you, I mean, yeah. I said, of course, because we all had a great affection and regard for Father Jim, I addressed him. And... Um, well, I'd say it was, we'll say, but three years later, we're coming to do the living certificate. That's when you'd better make, make up your mind. You obviously were thinking towards it if you're going to St. Munchen's College, right? But it'd be in that last year. And I'll always remember, right, four of us went up from St. Munchen's that year. Father Michael Manning, God rest Michael, my best friend. And the pair of us arrived in Manoos. We were appalled at the place. All these huge buildings, all black stone buildings, three, four uh, uh, things high in, in the area. And we both decided, we both decided we were going home. There's no way you could possibly live in this place. Cold, oh, you're, you, you feel rejected by the very size of it and the black stone and the rock, you know. Well, what happened? We had our first meeting with our spiritual director, a man called Father Tom Cleary. And Tom... He was um, a, 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 a very pleasant man and a very, very outgoing man and a, an excitable man. And Tom came in. Now, here we were now, already terrified with the size of this place, felt totally out of it and home we were gone. And this is how he started. Go home, he said. Go home. Go home if your father sent you here. If your, your mother, he said, actually. If your mother sent you here. So we couldn't go. Because if we did it all, things would all about the same. That's it. That sounds. That sounds a yard, but it's not. Yeah, that's, my goodness. That yeah. sounds a yard, but it's not. Anyway, that's why I stepped in my nose. But you continue the course and you finished it. I did seven years, yes. And your first appointment. Uh, what parish did you find yourself in? Uh, Monaline, which I loved. Monaline. Yeah. Do you know Monaline at all? Monaline, it's outside Limerick City. And, uh, yes, it must have been a fairly busy parish, was it, in its time? Well, it was still a country parish at that stage, mm. uh, but it was it was part of a bigger parish. St. Patrick's and Monaline were joined together. And the whole parish was a very big parish because it included Corbally, as well as St. Patrick's, which is there on the Dublin Road, and Monaline. It was quite a big parish, and there were three of us, Dr. Cooper, God rest him, Father Paddy O'Regan, God rest him, and myself. But I was in, in the, Mon- the Monaline end of it. Like, I lived there, and there was a church there, and I was responsible for that church. But we obviously celebrated in, all, in, 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 in both the churches. But it was, it, 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 it was a great start to my priesthood. I How many it. years were you there? Maudeline, I would say four years, I, would, I think. I was, I was in Maudeline, and while I was there, I always remember this, uh, Father... Paddy O'Regan was a great GAA man. Now, I was only just ordained, so I, but of course I was a GA man anyway, but I wasn't involved. But he he was very, very involved. And we had two teams, one in St. Patrick's, and the other, it's Monaline now, which is, my memory is gone now. To the, where it was will come back to me in a moment, which was on the other side of the parish. And so he had made me the chaplain to that, and he, St. Patrick's. So I went to the first meeting. Sure, I didn't know the first thing about anything. And what happened? There was a row between the chairman and the secretary. The secretary read out, read, read out his 
annual report and was very critical of the chairman. Mm. And the chairman, let me tell you, he knew his stuff, let me tell you. He said, gentlemen, he said, I can't respond from the chair. I'm resigning from the chair. Appoint the chairman for this meeting. So of course they appointed me. Sure, I knew nothing. And I went in, and all I remembered when was, there was a Canon McKevitt who used to teach us in Manoogth, if you ever you're in trouble, resign sine die, without giving a date, like you see. So this is all I did. When I think back in it, sure, I was petrified. And I went in, and I said, I'm sorry, I don't know anything at all about the issue. Mm-hmm. I couldn't possibly preside over this. So I said, we are, I'm postponing this meeting, sine die. And the sine die killed him. <laughs> But that's true. Yeah, and right. then over the next three months, less maybe it was less, I spent a lot of time with the chairman, a very, very, very fine guy. And of course I discovered there was such a division. Hmm. I'm amazed that when I think back, I'd be afraid to do now what I did then. Right. But I mean, I came to the conclusion there was nothing to be done, only to close it down. Yeah. Lord, ask me how I succeeded. And I, yeah. But I mean, the fact is, anyway, and I came back over to Monoline, which was at a different side of the parish, but that was all one parish. And I set up Monoline GAA, and it's one of the biggest clubs in Limerick today. And so it was while Father Eamon Casey was teaching religion in the vocational schools in St. John's Parish, and also in the Upper Tech in St. Anne's in the city in the 1950s, that he saw how so many people were leaving the country and emigrating to England. So, with the help of Father Michael Neville, he set up the Limerick Emigration Centre. Teaching religion in the vocational schools, in the Upper Tech, in St Anne's, and the three of them. And that's where it, it, it impinged on me, although I was aware of it within the parish as well, but, but not as much as teaching them, and then knowing they were all going to England. And I had to say to myself, you know, dear God, where are they going? How old do they know where they're going? And with Father Michael Neville, God rest Father Michael, he was about two or three years older than I was, we set up uh, the, the Limerick Emigrant, Immigration Centre. And I began to make contacts you know, with different people in, in, in England, and we'd get them to come up and see us before they went, and we would try to help them to where to go, how to get a job, etc., etc., etc. That's how we started. And then once I started that, I used to go over three times a year, because... A lot were going for my own parish, St. John's, as well. And I'd know those who were think, weren't going too well for them. I know where I used to go. And, of course, I didn't know where I was going. But that time, all the clippies, do you know what a clippy was? No. Clippy were the women who were the conductresses and the, and the buses. And they were all Irish, of course, in that time. And they'd put me from one bus to another. I'd come in. At that time, you never went anywhere without wearing your collar and the lot. And, of course, they, brought, they never took a penny from me in all my journeys and would send me... Lift father off in this, put father off in that, and that's how I got involved. I was visiting them like that, and finally, about, I suppose, I was in, in St. John's, maybe six, seven years, Bishop Murphy, God rest him, my good friend, sent for me and said he wanted to send a chaplain to England. Years before, the English hierarchy asked the Irish hierarchy to help them to help the Irish to integrate into their local parishes and communities. And so they appointed two men. They were Columbus, both of them good friends of mine. Jack Casey was one got arrested. They're both there now. The other man's name would come to me now. But they appointed two men who went over and spent nearly two years going around from diocese to diocese to see how could the Irish church best, best help the English church to help the Irish to integrate 
into their new parishes. And they came back after, I think it was within two years now, and suggested that Irish priests who were ordained a minimum of five and preferably ten years, in other words, they were, you know, they were mature, would go over and spend five to ten years with the English priests in a parish where there were a big Irish population. But that's how it started. Yes, and, it, it, like, and that's what made up your mind, that that's what you wanted to do. Well, well, to go back to my point, the bishop sent for me. I wanted to send somebody. But I said, I'll go, my lord. Yeah. He said, Evan, I didn't ask you. But I eventually convinced him. And he allowed <laughs> me to go. And that's why I went to Slough. So you were very good at doing that uh, <laughs> for many years. <laughs> I, I, went, I, went, I, went, I went to Slough. Mm-hmm. And what exactly did you do there? How did you start off? Well, I mean, what did, you, what did I do? Only, first of all, I was... The, a curate in the parish. There was a, a parish priest and two other curates. They were all English. But we got on great. And I'm not just saying that now. We did. He had been in the army for years. The parish priest had. He's for, uh, Father Massey. That's right, Massey. Father Massey. <laughs> and like he loved it when we locked the door at 8 o'clock at night. He, he became a changed man. During the day, every time the bell went, it went, you know, he felt it was a major crisis, you see. And then he would entertain us. He was extraordinary for such a quiet man. That time we only had one radio in the house, and we'd all go into his room. But his comments on what was on the radio were better than what was on the radio. Anyway, that's how I started, with these three Englishmen. And uh, then, of course, you had something like 350 factories in Slough. The bulk of those working in them at that stage were all Irish. Then you had a, a big factory like Mars Mars employing over a thousand people. So the place was crawling with Irish, with Irish people. And I just set, set, settled into the parish with the lads and, you know, said my masses and so forth. But in time I began to, to, to discover what the biggest problem they had. They were all young, you see, and a lot of them just married and buying their own homes. And they were caught. Do you know what interest rate was at that time? 19%. 19%. So you see, by the time they'd saved their deposit, they needed double that. Yeah. Now, where they got the brainwave, I couldn't tell you. How? Yes, no, tell me about that. I, I, I don't know. But here I had all these young couples, you know, all having children, starting their families, and not being able to buy a home. And all this now happened at the counter, if you don't mind. I went down to the local bank manager. Which I didn't know from Adam, not, not that he knew me, except that he was a priest, and I was Irish, that was fairly obvious. But fortunately, he was from the north of England, right? And now all this happened at the counter. Like, I was standing outside the counter, and it was really exciting to telling him what I wanted to do. That if I put a thousand pounds, which was a lot of money that time, remember what I'm talking about, 1960, right? If I put a thousand pounds into, on which I wanted no interest, would he loan up to five thousand in lots of about four hundred pounds, three to four hundred pounds, those I would introduce to him to get the balance and to get their their, their deposit. We stood at that counter for fifty minutes. I was never in his office, and then he called out his assistant, who was a North of England man as well. And after about ten minutes, they said yes. Now that all happened at the counter. My goodness, That's yes, right. yes. And my father got arrested. Yeah. Give me that thousand. Father Eamon Casey was aware of the need for young couples to get houses, and he explains that he started a saving scheme for them. How it started was, then I was able to help them to get the deposit, the full, the, the full deposit. And that was those who already had saved, you understand? But then I realised the need for 
people to, for uh, Irish people particularly but I mean I, I, we helped everybody eventually but Irish people to save and so I opened my own savings scheme and a man called Jim Maguire God rest Jim Maguire for nearly 20 years every Friday night from about 6 o'clock until midnight he sat in the little office because if you didn't take that money from him when they came in on Friday night you'd never get it and so that was the other big thing I started was my savings scheme and they having started my savings scheme giving them a, a chance to save because as I say they didn't get home until 7 because they'd be driving maybe 60, 70 miles to, to work every bank and every place was closed when they came home and so they came down and put in their savings and then in time I opened this was my second phase now then I, I opened uh, accounts for them in the bank so they built up their own credibility as well as having my support behind them and that was the first scheme, that the bank loan scheme, that I, 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 I helped them. If they had to wait to save, they'd never catch up. And that was my first scheme. But I, you moved to London then? Ah, but hold on a minute, sure. Yeah. You see, that was only one scheme. Then what was I going to do? Billy Kinman came in to see me. Billy, in spite of his name, he was Irish, actually. I think he was, anyway. And he, he was in the army all his life, in the Navy, actually. And he only married at the age of 40. And he had two children. And they were paying, which was an awful lot of money that time, they were paying £9 a week. He had no hope of saving. None whatsoever. Right? He could never buy. Now, how and where I got the money, I couldn't tell you. But I'd made a lot of contacts at this stage. I bought a house in Maidenhead. I don't know if you know Maidenhead at all. Maidenhead is a very up kind up of market, a, uh, market area. Right? Yes. And I bought a house in a cul-de-sac, thank you. <laughs> Five storey high. And the boys came out every evening after 7 o'clock. This is a fact now. And they converted into five units. Now, how I got away with it, I couldn't tell you. But the fact is, I did. Except the lady next door came in to see me. <laughs> and at least she came to see me. She was English, of course. And I say, no, only five houses. It was an, up, an upper class cul-de-sac. But when I told her what I was doing, didn't she give me the top flat in her house? <laughs> that's a fact. Now, that's my second scheme, my halfway house scheme. I ended up with three or four of those where a person would come in. I'd charge them four fifty a week for their, their, their flat. I could pay back my money on three and at the end of two years, provided they'd saved themselves, I'd give them back £31.50, which was a lot of money that time for every week they were in that. That was my second scheme now to help them with their deposit. But then a couple came to me. They were from Limerick. Anyone come to me now? He was living in one room with one child. She was up in London, and this was my third scheme. I suddenly decided right, and I bought the house. I, I put down the, the deposit myself, right, and then I made them give me the top of the house for two and a half years, and I put in bathroom and shower and kitchen, and then I was able to put another family in there for that two and a half years to save to buy their own home, and one of the first I put in there. But they weren't Catholics, and they had two children, and it was their it was her sixteen-year-old old sister that came to see me, not a Catholic, and she came in and she said, "I'm not a Catholic, Father." I said, "That's all right. What's wrong?" So she told me then how there were nine of them in the family, and her eldest sister had just been evicted. She was back living with them with her with her two children, and could I help? And that was the first couple I put into that upstairs one, and when he came to buy. And he had a good job now. You know, what I mean by that was, you know, he, he had a permanent job. He'd been in it for years, but wasn't paying much. 
So I said to him at the end of the, coming to the end of the time they were expecting their third child, I said, you'll have to get a rise in your wages. But what he said, he won't listen to me. But I said, you've been working with him for 15 years. All right, I said, I'll write to him. And I wrote to him and I spelt it out and said, if you don't give this man a raise of four pounds a week, he won't ever be able to have a house for himself and his family. And he gave it to me. My goodness, yeah. So I'm, I'm sure there were many cases like that. That, yeah, well, that, well, you, that was my third scheme then, yes. that, that I'd, I'd help a couple to buy a house, I'd put, I'd put in the full deposit, but then I'd hold the upper part of the house, put in a, a bathroom and toilet for two and a half years, and I'd use that then as a halfway house as well. Uh, was this scheme open to uh, all nationalities, yes. all creeds? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Obviously, it took time before that permeated. Because initially, obviously, with the Irish, I started it. But like I say, that couple I've just spoken to, colored people, everything, oh yes, it was open to everybody. Father Amy Casey moved from Slough to London and joined up with Maisie Ward, who was a writer and a speaker and a well-known character in the city. And together they opened the Family Housing Association. Um, you moved to London. Was, was that your decision? No, no, no. Carmel Heenan then got in contact with me. Oh, no, I must go back to, to, to there's a background to that. Um, and there's a story in it that, that, that's worth telling, even though it hasn't to do with what we're talking about now. I had a great pal who was who was a chaplain uh, in London, and chaplain in, in that very, you know, kind of wealthy kind of area around where Sheedon Ward's um, business is. And uh, Maisie Ward as you know, was a great Catholic, and she used to speak in Speaker's Corner and the lot. But Maisie, anyway, sent for my friend. Morris said, come and see me, you see? So he rang me, he was from Dublin, he was a Dublin, Dublin priest, a, a chaplain like myself, rang me and said, Emily, he said, Maisie, what? Ordered me to come and see her. Will you come? I said, of course I will. So I went with him. Now, she lived in a house, well, I'm sure she owned the whole house, but she was in the, in the third, third floor. And suddenly a window opened when we rang the bell. She said, stand back. This is Maisie Warner. And she dropped the keys down. And we opened the door and we came up. Well, she said into him about the Irish, come on over here, you know, and not practicing their religion. Went on and on and on. I was sitting there saying nothing. And Mike, you know, was answering as best he could. And... Uh, Suddenly I said, excuse me, ma'am, ma'am, I said, I'm living and working in Slough. I said, there's a second level school there of girls, a Catholic school. And my knowledge of the group that left last year, less than 5% of them are practicing their faith. So what the hell are you talking about? Now that's a fact. And didn't she catch me by the knee? And she said, excuse me, are you Father Casey? I said, I am. And that's how she and I became friends. And I worked with her. She was already doing housing with a, mm. a, a, a Catholic woman called Molly, Molly Walsh. She was she was Irish. And that's how we became friends. And I'd already started my housing, of course, in Slough. And this is why she said, my God, like she had heard it. And then what happened was, I joined them. Colonel Heenan invited me to come into London and to do my work all over England. So what what was the first scheme, Eamon, that you started when you when you were in London? Um, I was invited in by the, the Colonel, and 
Maisie Waters, I said, had already, you know, in a certain sense, been doing something similar on a smaller scale, obviously, but doing exactly the same. She was helping people by giving them loans and so forth. And the man who was her uh, secretary, voluntary, one, he, he owned property in London himself, Ted Wade. Ted Wade gave me an office in Great Cumberland Place, in W1. That's a solid fact. And I had that office for nearly three years. And, and Ted worked with me. And was I joined up with them. And But I took over with, with, with Ted. And that's how we started then opening. The next thing is we'd, we opened the Family Housing Association. And the Family Housing Association was an organisation that bought houses and kept people in them while they were saving to buy, but also had those that they gave them permanent accommodation, the Family Housing Association. And that, oh, I, I don't know, I, I, I'd have to go back to the facts now, but I'm certainly we have something like 24, 25 branches of that throughout, throughout England over the next two or three years. What kind of financial support did you get to set that up? I, I certainly got support from the diocese, from the Ash, from the Cardinal, and and I'd, I'd set up a whole series of, of, of incomes all over the place. And then parishes, you know, when we set up a family housing association, the parish became, it was in parishes we did it. Cool. Local it had to be, that that was the key, how it spread. That Because the, the, they were set up as separate local units, still kept in contact, and I still was, whatever you would call me, in, in charge of them. But they, they had their own entity, they, they were independent entities, but worked on all the principles that I was working on. That was the Family Housing Association. And as I say, it did the two things. Number one, it gave accommodation to people while they were waiting to save to, to buy, and also it gave some permanent, which still exist to this day. Father Eamon's next big scheme all started when Bruce Henry came over from America and Des Wilson, who was uh, Bruce Kenrick's advisor, together they founded Shelter on the 1st of December 1966. And all this evolved out of the work that Eamon had already done for the homeless people in England. The launch of Shelter was hugely benefited from the coincidental screening in November 66 on a television programme called Catty Come Home. And then it was subsequent to that that this clergyman who had come from America and had been involved in a very, very big way in all kinds of voluntary organisations in the States. My memory is so bad now. If I remembered the name of the famous book he wrote, many people would have heard of it, but, but as I say now, my memory isn't good enough. And he called four of us together with himself and this man whom he had as an advisor who had a big job out in the airport. I don't know what exactly it was. Nobody was a very able man. And he said to us, you know, there you're all out there, you know, uh, doing this and doing that and doing that, and you need money. Why don't we get together and just set up an organisation to collect money for you to do your job on the ground floor? That's coming back to the point you already asked me about money. And so we got together and we founded shelter. Right? Now the strange thing was this. Do you ever remember that film called Cathy Come Home? Yes, indeed. Well, now look at Providence. Look at Providence. 
by sheer accident. We already were already underway, and we found it about two months, maybe three, after Cathy come home. Sure, we took off, and we had nothing at all to do with Cathy come home. Do you follow me now? It was absolutely brilliant. We had nothing at all to do with Cathy come home. And the other people involved were Edward Baker, David Reed, and Luz Wadloff. Five of us that got together, and sure, it took off. I mean, the money came in rolling. I mean, just as if we had done Cathy come home to do it, and we didn't, you see. So providence is an extraordinary thing now, but that's what happened, and it became a, a tremendous success. Now, the problem was, um, we had to have um, a, a director, right? And all the all the other rest of us were already running our own organi- organisations, right? I had the two organisations, and so forth, and we appointed Des Wilson, the best thing we've ever done. He was absolutely brilliant, right? And... But when Des came in, you know, he discovered that a lot of the people that our friend had employed, which we had to do because we had got so big, you know, really they weren't up to the job. They were more appointed because they were Christians, or, 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 right? But not because of a specific ability for the particular job that had to be done. And so, you know, eventually, you know, he had to let a lot of them go, Right? And uh, our friend got very cross. And he came down to me. And he said, Des Wilson has to go. I said, I beg your pardon. He said, you know, he's firing all these people. You know, I said, and we can't have that. I said, have you been to see him? I haven't. I said, why said, why did you come to see me? Did you go down and talk to him? No, he must go. I said, good day. The next meeting, I came in and put my facts before them. And he had to resign. The man who founded us. But he, what was the reason for that? He was employing people, not because of their ability, but because they were Christians. Yeah. Not, not because of their ability. You need men with ability. How can you run an organisation unless the people you employ have the abilities to do it? Exactly. And, that, he, and he wasn't employing them in order to be, to be able to do the job that had to be done. He was The main purpose, he would only employ, apply believing Christians. Yeah. Have you got that point? So what happened next? He had to resign. I mean, and what happened well, when he resigned? I was made... Uh, you were a director then at that, that stage. Right. But when you're into something like that... You know, it's years now, you know, since this, all this happened. You know, um, it's in you. It's, it, 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 it's part of you. You, 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 you don't have to look and say, am I able to do this? I'm able. You just do it, I mean. It, it's, it's, it's something that, that once you get an understanding of what you're about, and get an understanding how to get your way through it, it just grows. Because each time you make a move forward and, and discover another way of doing things, you think of something else. Mm-hmm. You just become totally immersed in it. But I mean, the point then was, we had huge branches all over the country. And in two of the main branches, Birmingham, Father Paul Byrne, who succeeded me subsequently. I put him in charge, of, he was in charge of, of that. And Frank Park, another priest, he was in charge of, forget which city it was now. So, you know, I had all these men working with me all. And when I resigned, I resigned because I knew I had a man there I was able to carry it. And this is the point I want to make now. I felt I'd brought it 
to my record. And but I had I, I can't tell you the number of branches I had now, but I mean, uh, some of them were very large branches, one in Birmingham, for instance, and one where Frank was. Now, remember, in setting up all these uh, branches, many of them were around the Greater London area itself, but others were way out, like in Birmingham, Liverpool, and so forth. And I trained very special people for those. Paul Burden was one. Uh, Paul ran the one, uh, not in Birmingham, his, the city won't come to me, I guess that's because of my memory now. And he was the man who succeeded me. Because he had trained with me, he had run this effectively, I knew he was well capable. And why I decided that somehow I'd gone as far, I don't know, but I did. I made that conscious decision that I'd given what I'd got to give. If you ask me how did I become to it, I don't know, but I did. But also what had flutsmated because of these two men, Paul Burden and Frank Park, who were every bit as good as me. I mean that genuinely, I'm not just... They'd grasped the whole concept of what we were doing and how, and how to do it. And I suppose it was that more than anything else. That in, And I suppose I might have been getting tired. I don't know now, to be honest with you. Because, as you know, I didn't get tired. But whatever. <laughs> anyway, that's, I made my decision. But I don't think I would have made it if these two men hadn't been there. And that was 10 years, 10 whole years, 69. But in in that length of time, uh, you had set up all the, the, this network of, right. of uh, right. organisations. And, and it was so exciting. You have no idea. A man, you know, who to whom I owe, owe so much was this man whom I mentioned to you already. He is the man who had been working with Maisie Ward and who gave me my office, my first office. In 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 in, uh, in the in the heart of the way of the of the west one, uh, he 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 had been working with Maisie Ward for years, but like we were now at a, at a much bigger level. But I mean, but his understanding and knowledge, and the fact that he gave me the offices I had and worked with me full time, for nothing. But was it hard to step down then? From no, that? They, they were all working so well. Because remember again, now you see, like. The ones I set up around London itself, it was the local people there that were that were running them. You know, I was their guide, and we'd have general meetings twice or three times a year. You know, where where we would discuss matters. But I, I, all the people who were in charge, these were all um, um, educated people. I wanted to use a different word than educated. They were all able men in their own in 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 in, in their own careers. You know, and gave themselves voluntarily. You know, to, to 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 running these, they were they were going like a nice machine. Mm-hmm. Now that's the fact. And here I had these two men, who were quite competent. In fact, I believed and I believe correctly that that Paul, having you know come through the whole thing himself, had his own understanding and could take it beyond where I had taken it. And that's why I made my decision to go. And I was coming home to Limerick. It's a curious. So anyway, that's the story. Well, we've come to the end of part one in Bishop Amy Casey's own story. I also made recordings with Irish chaplain priests who were with Amy Casey in England at that time, and they include Father John Kennelly, a brother of Brendan Kennelly, the writer, Father Joe Nolan, who was there since the very start of the Irish emigrant chaplaincy scheme. And they're all available on our website, that's www.irishlifeandlore.com. And in next week's podcast, part two of Bishop Amy Casey's own story. 
and they will include stories of Bishop Amy Casey when he was in Kerry and also when he was in Galway and the visit of the Pope to Galway. I used to smoke cigars that time. I and whoever else smoked, there were only three or four bishops there to, to greet him. We lit up. The next time he was down within ten minutes, we nearly fainted. And we all tried to put out our cigars and throw them into the fire and then and that. And then he was so easy to be with. I'm Maurice O'Keefe and I look forward to bringing you that podcast next week.